This is the Concealed Carry Podcast, episode number 434. And welcome to the Concealed Carry Podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com network. I am your host, Riley Bowman, and today I have a special guest whom I will introduce here momentarily and will give a proper introduction uh, as to who this gentleman is and his background and, and why he, I think, knows a thing or two about the things we're going to talk about today. Uh, it'll be a great episode, I promise you, of that. Uh, I also want to point out that we are in the process of launching a new podcast that will replace the uh, former Law Dog Shooting Sports podcast, uh, which, uh, due to some circumstances, had to be put to rest. But a new, improved, better show is on the way here very shortly, and I look forward to the official announcement of that, uh, hopefully in the next week or so. But uh, don't forget to check out all of our podcast shows. We've got uh, this one, of course, our our bread and butter. Our This is where it all began. But uh, we have the, uh, let's see, the, uh, man, I'm having a, it's, I, I just got on off vacation, Don. I just got off vacation, <laughs> folks. Bear with me here. Uh, but we've got the Not Your Average Gun Girls podcast and also the Firearm Trainers podcast. Other great podcast shows for you to check out all in the family of concealedcarry.com. So speaking of that, uh, here I, again, will introduce our special guest momentarily. Uh, I just returned from Idaho off, uh, off of a rather long vacation, longer than it was intended even. And I'm thrilled to be back and, and back in the podcast chair here in the home office. But uh, uh, we're kicking off this show just a, a day late, actually. It's a Friday. Everybody's probably half asleep because, you know, thank goodness it's Friday. But we bring to you some really important content today. And uh, before we get into that, real quick, today's episode sponsors, CCW Safe. I am thrilled to be part of the CCW Safe family. I, I consider them part of my family. Uh, our partnership between concealedcarry.com and CCW Safe is, uh, is, an, is an important one to me. And uh, I am thrilled to be a member of CCW Safe. Uh, because of guys like our guest, who I will again introduce here in a second, uh, I'm 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 really bearing the burying the lead on this one today. Uh, but because of guys like him on the team at CCW Safe, gives me great confidence that if for whatever reason I found myself in a situation that I could not escape from physically or legally, even after doing my very best, then. I know I'm I'm well covered, and I know these guys got my back. And so, check out ccwsafe.com to learn more and get signed up. And don't forget that Guardian Nation members save additionally as well. It's a discount not available anywhere else. And so, today's second episode sponsor is Guardian Nation. GuardianNation.com is where you can learn more, and you'll save tons on all kinds of products and services, including CCW Safe as well as have special access to great members-only content, including our monthly Guardian Nation live broadcasts with special industry experts and guests, including today's guest, whom we will have next week, next Tuesday, I believe, evening, 7 p.m. Mountain Time. You're going to want to be sure you're there. 
And if you are not a member of Guardian Nation already, you can do so by checking it out for free for two weeks, two week free trial. Go to concealedcarry.com forward slash 14 day, one four D-A-Y to sign up. 14 day free trial. All right. Make it easy. And you can take advantage of that free trial and be there for this live broadcast because what we're going to talk about today, you're going to really enjoy, but there's going to be even more that comes next week. And there'll be some things maybe we even talk about that we wouldn't talk about here uh, where this is being aired publicly. So, guys, our guest, who is he? Now, those of you watching video, you kind of know already, but I am pleased to introduce to you Don West, an attorney. Well, Don West Law is your firm, right, Don? That's, yes. Uh-huh. And you also work as National Trial Counsel for CCW Safe. And right. I, I don't think there could be a better person to be in that position with a company like CCW Safe because you are one of the most experienced trial lawyers, especially in the in the self defense realm, and you're involved in a very high profile case that if I threw out the name, you'd all, you would all know it. Um, but Don, what else did, did I not mention that is important for people to know about you or maybe things that you'd like to share that, you know, you're, you just like to throw out there. Like who is Don West? Well, thank you, Riley, for your kind words. I'll give a short bio so people will know what my background is. Of course, I'm a practicing attorney. I have been practicing for almost 40 years. Now, I am licensed in Florida. I'm board certified as a criminal trial specialist in Florida, and I've been board certified, in fact, for more than 30 years. Uh, That's a a specialty like an orthopedist would be a specialty of um, medicine. Being board certified, recognized by the bar, allows you to hold yourself out as a specialist or an expert, and it requires additional training and certain established levels of experience, recommendations from lawyers and judges. So, I'm certainly proud of that, and uh, it's an area of law that I've practiced, that is, criminal defense law that I've practiced since the very beginning. My earliest legal days were uh, in criminal defense at the public defender's office, a stint in private practice. I got tired of running a business. I think everyone that's run a business uh, that loves what they do can get tired of running the business, and uh, I got tired of running the business after about 20 years, and did a stint in the federal government. I uh, worked in the federal defender's office, and for that period of time, I supervised a unit of lawyers and uh, paralegals and investigators that handled only uh, death-eligible murder cases. So that was some pretty intense stuff. And then left that position, went back into private practice a number of years ago, and have continued in, in that sense. Oh, going back about five years or so ago, I just by coincidence attended a presentation in Orlando that was being given by the captain of the Stanford Police Department uh, during the George Zimmerman Trayvon Martin case and met the guys from CCW Safe. They were sponsoring it. I didn't know of them, didn't know any of them individually and um, liked what they did. We connected immediately. One thing led to another, and pretty soon I transitioned to the position that I now hold with them, which is National Trial Council. I, I can talk about that at some point, and I certainly think it might be valuable to know what role I play or what what that is in the context of CCW Safe. But 
my entire legal career has been uh, doing criminal defense trial work. And within that, I've handled virtually every kind of criminal case, both state and federal court. I, I've been defense counsel in death penalty cases in state court as well as federal court. That's a fairly small club, as it turns out. And over the last several years, I've largely limited my practice, my private practice, to self-defense. I am fascinated by that as a lawyer. I think it's the kind of area where otherwise law-abiding, decent people get crossways. Sometimes, even with other generally law-abiding, decent people, something terrible goes wrong, and pretty soon somebody gets hurt, and then somebody gets prosecuted. And one of the, that's one of the few cases, I think, where virtually anybody could wind up facing a criminal prosecution, especially if they're a concealed carrier. My, uh, my personal background is uh, I grew up in western Pennsylvania in a very rural area, uh, mostly farmers, and went to college in Pennsylvania, was going to kind of follow the family tradition be a, and be a school teacher. Uh, that didn't work out. I even went to graduate school, got a master's degree in education, but couldn't get a job <laughs> and was in California uh, visiting with some old friends. And uh, one of them was in law school. And since not much else was good that was happening, I decided to go to law school. So I actually started law school in California, went a couple of years in the evening program at Loyola. I know there's a lawyer listening from California. He certainly or she will certainly know about Loyola Law School, a very good law school in downtown Los Angeles. After a couple of years, I just didn't like it as much. I had moved on and was uh, working in radio, actually, of all things. Uh, for somebody that doesn't really have the gift of gab, I was working at a radio station that's still kind of big, big deal in Los Angeles. It's uh, K-R-O-Q, K-Rock. I was on the air there for four or five years in the 70s. And then as those things happened, moved around a bit, went back east, lived in Canada a little while, got kind of tired of that lifestyle. And law school sounded a lot better for me at that point. So uh, dragging out an even too long story already, I, I uh, transferred my credits, went to law school in upstate New York having spent a couple of winters in Buffalo, as you might imagine, shortly on graduation, I headed to Florida. And that's pretty much where I've been ever since. And that's where I've practiced since the uh, early 80s in, in Florida. So that's kind of, yeah. that's kind of the background there. Well, uh, I, you know, I, I love Florida, by the way. I, I used to make an annual pilgrimage there for a show back in a previous life when I was in the construction trades. Uh, they, I used to attend the uh, International Builder Show in Orlando every year. And I always enjoyed mm -hmm. my, my trip down there. And anyway. It was uh, probably at the Orange County Convention Center. Yep, it sure was. Yeah, on, down on International Drive, sure. Yep, yep, yep. So uh, Florida, like, you know, beautiful climate, like California, but freer with more guns, right? <laughs> <laughs> Everybody that wants to have a gun can. You know, it's a, it's a statewide concealed carry license. If you are otherwise eligible, it's a must issue. And anyone without a criminal record and otherwise can meet fairly low standards, actually, can get a concealed carry permit. Yes. 
and there are conditions under which anyone, even without a permit, can legally carry a gun in their car. So there's uh, a lot of guns, a lot of gun owners, and um, uh, yes, I, I would like to thank a lot of responsible gun owners, and I think there are, considering there are so many, they clearly are mostly responsible, but then on the other hand, Florida is known for some of the crazy stuff, too, that happens there. Yeah. Well, that's true. You know, everybody talks about the Florida man and stuff, right? So uh, uh, Florida is an interesting, it's a beautiful place, but it really is such an interesting and diverse uh, place. Uh, that That's the thing. The more I visited there, the more I, I learned just how truly diverse it is, especially as you start seeing more of the state and you're just like, wow, this part of Florida is not like that part of Florida at all. <laughs> Anyway, it's almost like an amalgam of several states. Yeah. You know, there's parts of Florida are really South Georgia or South Alabama. And then there's a whole mid area you kind of skip over until you get to South Florida, which is very different than all of those other areas. Yeah, it is. It's a <laughs> an interesting melting pot. Well, uh, we should uh, probably move on from our our chat about Florida, although it's making me want to, to visit there again here soon. Um. So, Don, uh, like I said, you've been very much involved and very experienced in self, particularly self-defense trials. And uh, I, I might as well just kind of launch right into it a little bit. But, uh, you know, you, you, you are the guy. Well, one of the guys. But were you lead counsel on the George Zimmerman case? I would call it co-counsel. Uh, okay. Mar Mark O'Mara, uh, an excellent criminal defense lawyer in Orlando that I've known for more than 30 years, in fact, had worked with him on other cases as co-counsel, was mm -hmm. originally retained. He was actually the second lawyer involved in the case, but he was retained by George Zimmerman and for a while was moving forward on his own. And then he and I being friends and colleagues talked about it. Um, I was intrigued by it, and then the sort of op the opportunity developed where I was invited to participate in the case. So, although I think we shared all of the responsibilities equally, I think technically Mark would be co-counsel. I know that I would defer to him if we disagreed on something, unless it was a a big deal. It was just life was easier that way. Gotcha. Yeah. Good. So. That's an interesting case, uh, one, because of the media attention that it garnered, um, second, because of the actual facts of the case, and there's many, many, many lessons to be learned uh, from that case. In fact, I just got, you know, in preparation for our interview today, I just got done uh, this morning reviewing, I, I had read these these blog posts before, but but I went back and reread uh, the uh, series that was done on CCW Safe's website, uh, which is a fantastic, you know, step-by-step kind of legal analysis talking about, you know, the location, where it happened, the, you know, all the circumstances related to that, uh, the actual incident, you know, post-incident, um, you know, all of that. It's it's a really good read. So I would point folks to the ccwsafe.com blog uh, for, for a really interesting read about that case. And I think it, it's a couple years a couple years old. So the way I found it is, uh, I went to the blog and I clicked on page fifteen, 
And that's how far back in, in pages of blog posts that it is. Uh, but that will get you there. And then you can scroll down and you can see all these different uh, analysis uh, little segments about uh, the case. And so I would, I would encourage folks to read that because there's a lot of really good and, and important detail there, including a lot of stuff that we can't get into in the time of a podcast today, nor is it my intent to make it the sole focus of the podcast today. But I think there are some key things that we can point to and kind of learn from has great relevance for all of us as concealed carriers. Uh, I also know that you were involved in, in another case uh, that was a CCW safe case. George Zimmerman was not, but uh, that, that would be the Stephen Maddox case, which Stephen was on our podcast. Oh gosh. Uh, it's been a little while now, maybe last year sometime last fall. I seem to recall. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. I, I think that we could probably, you know, talk a little bit about that, especially as it relates to, you know, CC, CCW safes kind of role that it plays it played in that case and, and, and can also play in, in everybody's, you know, everyone else listening here, you know, if you're a CCW safe member, here's some really relevant information about what that looks like. You know, if you are involved in that kind of situation, what will CCW Safe do for you? What what does your role? You kind of touched on it, Don, as National Trial Counsel. What does what that looks like? And I think what that brings to the table for people that are you know, there's a lot of options out there for what I would call self defense coverage, if you will. Um, mm-hmm. And and I think there's some really strong advantages that CCW Safe offers. So I think we can touch on that. In fact, I, I can tell you, you want to say something. I just want to also make it clear. This is not meant to be a, a, an episode long of advertisement for CCW safe. Although folks that know us and are, uh, you know, familiar with our brand, we've been associated with, and you guys have been sponsoring our podcast for some time now. And you're one of the main dudes at CCW safe in your, in your current position there. So, it, it's going to be that way, and it is what it is. So just a, a little bit of a disclaimer there, I guess, in, in advance. But, uh, Don, I mean, to, to what I just kind of covered there, what would your response be? Yeah, I'm happy to talk about the Maddox case and, and my role in it. It's different than it was when I provide personal representation to an individual who's charged with a crime. Before I jump to that, let me mention, if those those of you that want to dig deeper into the George Zimmerman, Trayvon May, uh, Martin case and are looking for more sources of information beyond the, what's available on the CCW Safe website. Uh, Andrew Branca from the Law of Self Defense wrote extensively in real time about that case, and I didn't even discover it until later. I just didn't have time working on the trial to really dig into what people were saying outside. And I think he's a great source of material both then and now in the world of, of self defense law. And there's also kind of a a person on the other side of the spectrum politically that I thought wrote very convincingly and very well about the issues in the case, a lawyer from uh, the Denver area named uh, Gerilyn Merritt, who has a pog, uh, podcast, I think it's still up, called Talk Left. And some of the stuff that she wrote about the case was very insightful and incisive. And I thought that her analysis was spot on uh, along the way. Now, uh, back to uh, Stephen Maddox, it was a a homicide in North Carolina, in Wilson, North Carolina, that was then prosecuted as a first-degree murder. 
Stephen was a member of CCW Safe. He got a chance to call shortly after he was taken into custody. I didn't speak with him on the phone. Um, another lawyer in, in the firm, in the company, Kyle Sweet, general counsel, spoke with him. But I became involved almost immediately. And one of my primary responsibilities in responding to a CCW Safe member incident is to identify and and retain legal counsel. At this point, Stephen was in jail. He was about an hour from where he lived, didn't know any lawyers. And I took it upon myself at that point to find some qualified lawyers in the community where the incident took place. I think that's important, having counsel that knows the lay of the land right where the thing happened, whether it's prior cases with the prosecutor, judge, interactions with law enforcement, someone that really knows the inside scoop on how the case is going to be viewed. I hired a couple of really talented and completely committed lawyers from North Carolina, Tart Thomas and uh, Kurt Schmidt. They immediately went to work and to the surprise of the jailer, when they showed up at the jail the next day to talk with Stephen, uh, less than 24 hours, I think, after the incident, um, they had lawyers right on the spot and um, were able immediately to get a handle on it and advise him the next step, get to work on bond, communicate with his family. We also coordinated for a critical response to the scene. Uh, our critical response uh, at that point was a, a former ATF agent who went there, interacted with the family, uh, interacted with Stephen's employer, helped everyone understand better what was going on. Stephen was in jail, uh, no bond, and there was nothing he could do, no matter how much money he had, he, he couldn't get out of jail. So we went to work on all of that. Actually, we wound up engaging a bail bondsman in fairly short order. The lawyers got Stephen to court, and uh, with a very powerful presentation, even though the prosecutor was seeking for bail to be completely denied, the judge did set a bail, although it was very, very high. I think it was, I think it was four hundred fifty or five hundred thousand dollars. It was an enormous amount of money. Uh, Stephen's membership with CCW Safe provided for the bail premium, and I remember interacting with the bail bondsman. We worked out it and uh, overnighted or wired the money to the bail bondsman and. As soon as the other conditions of bail were met, in terms of ankle bracelet and such, uh, Stephen was out of jail on a first-degree murder charge. And while it was 21 months of day-to-day -day agony, not knowing what his future would be and being under the uh, supervision of the court, he was out. And eventually, he was able to go back to work, continue to provide for his family. But I think most importantly, he was able to really assist in his defense. He was able to meet with his lawyers outside the jail. Uh, as part of my role as National Trial Counsel, I coordinated with the lawyers. I gave them suggestions on expert witnesses, helped them engage private investigators, which made a big difference in how the case came out in terms of finding some witnesses. Uh, we hired a couple of expert witnesses that I think made a huge difference ultimately in, in the case, a forensic pathologist who was able to show that the local medical examiner had made some pretty significant errors in the mm -hmm. autopsy. I know that I went to North Carolina on several occasions pre-trial to meet with the lawyers, just kind of put our heads together, even though I wasn't counsel of record, 
we were talking, we were looking at legal issues and strategies, and there were even some occasions where we created kind of a, a mock trial setting where I would participate in some pretending to be the prosecutor or some aspect of what helping Stephen anticipate what it might be like at the trial and uh, should he have to take the stand, which he did. You know, uh, remarkably, Stephen took the stand. He did beautifully on direct, so well on direct that when the prosecutor challenged him on cross, he was ready. He was clear. He was concise. He was truthful. And basically, I think after about 10 minutes, the prosecutor gave up. And um, clearly, his case was deflated at that point. That's such a remarkable story, you know, and in hearing it firsthand from his point of view on the podcast, as I mentioned, uh, some, some number of episodes ago, uh, it was really eye opening. And, and honestly, that was the, like the kicker for me. I think it was around that time or shortly thereafter, I became a member of CCW safe. You know, I, I didn't know much about the industry when I was first introduced to these guys. Um, I sort of knew it existed, meaning the self-defense coverage protection type programs. Some were on a more of an insurance model, others more on a membership model. But once I started looking at them carefully and sort of as a trial lawyer who had tried a number of self-defense cases, from beginning to end. I know George Zimmerman's the one that if I'm associated with, that's the one, but it's certainly not the only self-defense case I've tried. I've actually tried a number of self-defense cases where my client um, shot and killed an, uh, an ostensibly unarmed person. Those are the really, really hard ones. You know, mm-hmm. when a guy shoots somebody else and it's claimed that the person was unarmed. So I've been through a number of them beginning to end. I sort of knew what it would take to position the case favorably in front of a jury so that they could look legally at the facts, understand the law, how it all meshes together so that, in fact, someone who's armed could be in reasonable fear of great bodily harm or death and could use legal uh, deadly force in in self-defense. And um, I've, I've had enough success with that. I know that it's that it's real, but it takes a huge amount of preparation, a huge amount of commitment. And to some degree, that's what Stephen was facing. You know, he's the guy with the gun and the guy that he shot while he was big and strong and, and nasty as could be more than physically able to overwhelm Stephen. He did not immediately have a weapon present or, or shown. So this became characterized as as you hear the cliche, bringing a gun to a fist fight. And uh, once again, you know, the jury was able to see through that kind of smoke screen that the prosecutor put up, see the facts for what they were. And it didn't take him very long to, it didn't take him very long to acquit Stephen. It's a proud moment for those lawyers. And I think for CCW safe as well. Um, anyway, not making this a commercial, what really impressed me about those guys is that uh, CCW safe founders they knew from personal experience what it was going to take to go from beginning to end in the legal system. So they didn't arbitrarily put caps on things. Some cases might cost $5,000, but other cases might cost $500,000. 
uh, to defend. Likewise, with experts, sometimes you may not need any, but sometimes you might need three or four forensic pathologists, uh, ballistics person, um, use of force. Sometimes you may have $2,000 worth of investigative expense. In the Stephen Maddox case, it was almost $50,000 that CCW spent on an investigative work. So these guys didn't create a limit and stick to it. They really decided and committed they would provide the necessary resources, whatever the case required. So without those limits, um, you know, I, I think that was the most comprehensive coverage when I was sort of looking at, at these plans, and it impressed me the most that that yes, it's a, sort of a for a catastrophic worst case scenario. But once you face that, the last thing you want is to to run out of money halfway through the case. So I was very impressed with these guys and and agreed to kind of join up. Yeah, um, as you know, you noted you you were basically involved in selecting them, which, you know, that, I, so I guess I would say you selected well. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I, we, we were a good fit right off the bat. Um, they've never asked me to do things that I wasn't comfortable with. I'm not in sales. I don't go out there and try to get people to sign up, but I'm happy to tell the story and I'm happy to share my experiences. There weren't any requests that the lawyers on the Stephen Maggs case made uh, that was going to require CCW safe to spend money that they said no. In fact, they went beyond what they needed to spend in order to be sure that Stephen had every possible opportunity to win the case. Yeah. So, yeah. So really you, you, we have little cases too. We have the kinds of stupid cases that, that you see when you read in the news about people brandishing a firearm illegally or pulling out a gun to win an argument, you know, those kinds of things. But the real core of, I, I think, the company is someone using lethal force in the face of a deadly threat and then facing the consequences. Mm -hmm. Of course, you, I mean, that's what you would probably rather, well, I guess as an attorney, Nobody minds getting a, getting a paycheck, but uh, that, that's, you know, really what you'd rather see happen is, is a situation in a case that can be resolved relatively quickly and, and easily um, as opposed to being drawn out into this big, massive, you know, thing. Um, and so, you know, I imagine there's all kinds of cases like that, uh, most of which we never hear about that, you know, charges ended up getting dismissed or, something to that effect because of because of good work that a legal team can do for their client. Yeah, and that's not necessarily defined by the charge not being serious or the case being relatively minor. Mm -hmm. I think it requires good work up front, knowing where to put the resources and the time and the effort. And we've had cases involving homicide. We've had lethal self-defense cases where our members were not arrested, uh, never faced any kind of prosecution. There were no charges filed. Not necessarily right away. It may have taken weeks or months to sort all of that out, but by getting the critical response team involved, getting investigators on the scene, getting good, competent, experienced criminal trial lawyers uh, involved right away, 
interacting to the extent you can uh, appropriately with law enforcement and, and the prosecutor can sometimes um, help explain things that previously were unclear. You can, to a limited degree, answer questions. And, and the goal, of course, is not to get charged at all. If you get charged, the goal is to win the case, of course. But uh, if you can avoid being charged at all, you've had a huge, huge positive impact on uh, your client's life, the, the member's life. They have just avoided what Stephen Maddox had to go through for 21 months, even though at the end of the day he was acquitted. Those He never gets those 21 months back in his yeah. life. And, and his life is change forever. It, it is. Um, talk about somebody whose life has changed forever. Uh, I know we don't want to make Zimmerman case a feature mm-hmm. of this podcast, but George Zimmerman's life is changed forever. Sometimes he's made some bad decisions. I, I think he's on a better track now. I, I feel pretty good about him having better insight, uh, being less angry angry about the way he was treated by the media, angry about the way he um, felt he was doing the right thing only to have him become the most reviled person, you know, in the country. And um, that's been a real struggle for him. And, And while he is the extreme, perhaps, that's not unlike what anybody goes through when they are accused of a crime and facing what could be the rest of their life in prison, obviously. Right. Um, one last thing about Zimmerman, and then I'll shut up. And that is, we're now shortly more than seven years past the verdict. And from the day the prosecutors made their argument through today, I have never met anyone that can articulate a prosecution theory that makes him guilty when you include the forensic evidence and the credible witness statements. There just is no plausible explanation that makes him guilty. And yet, if you do a public opinion survey, you know, depending on who you ask, uh, you're going to find, you know, that the hate is still out there, the misunderstanding is still there, the the, the emotion connected with it is still just as raw mm-hmm. in many ways. Well, that's the power of the media, right? That is often unchecked by nature of our First Amendment uh, that uh, can so greatly influence public opinion on on matters. Uh, we're seeing, we're living it right now with things going on in, in a variety of areas in, in the mm-hmm. country. And, and maybe we'll touch on the St. Louis thing, perhaps. I, I think that's an interesting one. But uh, um, even myself, I, I and I guess... Well, before I say that, you know, even within our, I guess, gun community, if you will, or concealed carry community, we run into people that don't have a positive, actually quite often amongst our own, I guess, people, again, as concealed carriers, a lot of people don't have a positive uh, view of George Zimmerman. And And I guess what it would be, what I would say to that is that I think it's because people look at his case and even if they correctly understand the facts of the case you can still look at his his case at the the incident that night and go well he made mistakes right Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. i would counter that with 
almost nobody goes through a situation like that and doesn't make mistakes. And the best thing we can do is to is to take a case like his or any other case that's, you know, like even Stephen Maddox, another great case, but to look at those and go, okay, what can what can I personally like look at it very personally? What can I personally take from that? Uh, so that I'm a little bit better prepared. I'm a little bit more knowledgeable uh, that I hopefully don't end up in that situation like he did. I agree. I, I think there were some mistakes surrounding the event itself that from a tactical standpoint, certainly there were better decisions to have been made, uh, decisions in anticipation of there being confrontation that he would have to to deal with, but a lot of the mistakes that are attributed to him uh, just aren't reality in fact. So, yeah, he could have done a lot of things differently, and no doubt he wishes he did. But, for example, to be uh, accused of being told not to follow Trayvon Martin and then getting out of the car and following him anyway uh, as a mistake is factually incorrect. It just didn't happen that way. So today is not the day to to dissect all of that. Uh, I think George made a lot of mistakes afterwards trying trying to deal with the experience that he'd had with the media, with uh, the prosecution who, who cared nothing about his life even though they had to know they had a terribly weak case. I just said a minute ago, there's nobody that's been able to offer a convincing theory of what makes him guilty. They knew that. They weren't stupid. They weren't inexperienced. But they were willing to go forward so aggressively and so zealously that had they been, in their minds, lucky enough to get a conviction, they would have been content for him to spend the rest of his life in prison. That's just horrible. So anyway, George is dealing with all of that. Anyone that watched the trial would see Mark and me get angry lots of times at what we saw were the the little injustices along the way. And George isn't a lawyer. He's not in court to understand how all of that fits together. And then, of course, George made huge mistakes after the fact. He uh, Some arrests and just some, some really foolish things that he did that kept him in the spotlight in a very negative way. And I have to attribute a lot of that to some of the damage that he sustained just as a human being, maybe some of it just a a response, just kind of a lashing out because of feeling kind of so helpless from the process. Yeah. Well, you're one of the most popular people in America. I mean, as far as like one of the most known people in America, but you feel like everybody hates you. Like that's got to be a really crappy place to be. You bet. Yeah. I mean, just look at all the problems that Hollywood, you know, people have uh, themselves and, and more people typically like them, (laughs) you know? And and so you're in this position of everybody knows me, but I'm hated. Well, you know, it's interesting, Riley, because uh, here we are doing this podcast because of the technology that's available to us now that wasn't available 10 or 15 years ago, I suspect. And um, the Zimmerman case was my first experience with social media mm. and with instant media access. We, uh, there were reporters in the courtroom 
tweeting about the case in real time, stuff that I wouldn't know what was happening until I'd go out and I'd see this. And then I would know that they got it wrong or that uh, you watch these stories circumnavigate the globe through these various news agencies. And you'd see it's like a, like a, a game of telephone where at mm-hmm. the end of the process, you see just how distorted and inaccurate and biased, um, you know, the view of the Zimmerman case largely, I think for the individual depended on which news outlet they watched because yeah. they were so incredibly different in terms of the way the case was portrayed. And I think that social media stuff, the instant access, and as a result of that, the trolling, just the, the hate to be hateful kind of stuff is uh, just kind of yeah. pollutes all of these things that are in the news. These days. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great point. Yeah. And so much has changed in our lives because of uh, because of social media, because of the 24-hour news cycle, uh, it just is. Uh, it's an these are interesting times we're in. But but it's important, as you well know, to understand that's now a reality. Which means that if you're involved in a self-defense shooting of some sort, mm-hmm. the first place law enforcement is going to look is your social media. Mm-hmm. And if you've said things that are stupid or aggressive or in some way that would uh, reflect in the prosecutor's mind an intent to go be aggressive and to go find somebody to engage with that you can show them how, what a tough guy you are, that will all come back to haunt you. So for those that are listening that have a way to modulate your social media, even though if you say things that you might think are kidding or just for a limited audience, there was something like 3,500 pages of Facebook and texting and stuff in the Maddox case that was grabbed by the prosecutor and mined, you know, frankly, mined by both sides. The prosecutor tried to mine Stevens and the defense mined uh, the, the shooting victim, you know, so it was all out there. And by the time the jury got it, they got a sampling from, of all of it. Mm-hmm. So it's very real. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's a, that's a true thing. I mean, uh, we would all do well to, to think before we post sometimes <laughs> and, and, and to, you know, like we say, once it's on the internet, it it's out there forever. And, sure. and that is so true because even when it's deleted, usually somebody's already screenshotted it. Or it's re- it's uh, recorded somewhere on some other you know archive type site or uh, yeah if, yeah I don't know you know actually this would be a good question Don for you because you you probably understand this a little bit but um, h- how does it work exactly so this, this is a very specific question of course but um, obviously you know this is going to come as part of the pretrial investigation um, uh, discovery all this right but uh, how does it work when a prosecutor, for instance, wants to go and look at, uh, a, at, at, you know, this person, you know, say George Zimmerman's social media or Stephen Maddox social media or my social media, like what do they actually gain access to? And what is that process sort of like? I, I'm actually curious about that. I'm not sure I'm very helpful on that. Mm-hmm. Of course, the first thing they capture anything that's in the public domain. Right. And there's a lot of stuff out there that you can simply go get by virtue of looking. Right. Um, you can't, as a lawyer, you can't ethically 
friend someone just to get access to their stuff. That's a mm-hmm. highly unethical thing to do as a lawyer. And I assume that extends certainly to police and and, pro- and certainly to prosecutors. But there's a lot of stuff out there anyway. And then what I what I don't know is what the current state of the law is about subpoenas for Facebook or Twitter. Twitter. Uh, there is an enormous amount of stuff that you just go on there and click and, and download and you've got it. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you can access it through other people involved in the case, you know, a, a friend or another sure. witness uh, through their social media stuff. You get access to the accused uh, or the you know, deceased social media stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's a flurry of, of subpoenas. Mm-hmm. Of course, yeah. uh, how successful they are these days is a, an ongoing battle, I think, of personal mm-hmm. privacy. Uh, I think the the rule to take out of it or the lesson is there probably isn't much at the end of the day. And you're much better off avoiding having stuff out there that's going to hurt you than thinking you can keep it private um, if, it's, if it's there. Yeah. Yeah, I was just I was just curious if you, if you kind of, you know, is that is that subpoena serve to say like Facebook and Facebook is releasing those records. Is that kind of the process that you understand, or, or I mean, am I missing something here? You know, the funny thing is, um, we had unsuccessful attempts to subpoena Facebook and some other social media stuff in the Zimmerman case, and gave up because it was just too much trouble, too many mm. hoops to jump through. But frankly, as soon as there is a high-profile case that hits the media, whoever's out there that knows how to do that privately is doing it. We got a lot of the stuff uh, that wound up ultimately being in discovery, but we would have gotten it separately anyway, uh, just because of people out there that had taken aside and quick downloaded stuff before it was deleted. Mm. Uh, Most of these cases will have some aspect of of the posts that are deleted in some Mm -hmm. way. So right. if you read any about anything that's controversial in the news, you'll see about the tweet or the Facebook post that is now deleted, but somebody yep. has captured it. Yep. And they're more than more than happy to share it. Yeah, that's so true. So true. <laughs> so uh okay, so kind of shifting gears a little bit. Again, we kind of touched on how right now, just with the state of things in our country, uh with riots and protests and black lives matters. And, uh, you know, particularly if it was an incident where two individuals of different races were involved and deadly force was used, it's, it's likely to, to get some attention right now in, in these times. Um, let, let's kind of look at the St. Louis case as an example, right? You have this, this couple, that are in a gated community, uh, which George Zimmerman was in a gated community as well. And all of a sudden there's this horde of people coming through your community. And, you know, I, I'm not intending on being judge of, you know, like what's the right thing to do, you know, but, but just looking at this case in particular, uh, they came out armed, right. For whatever reason, they felt like that's what they needed to do. Um, and, and initially for several days, no charges, you know, it didn't seem like there was anything going on there. And all of a sudden now that, that they have been charged and of course their guns confiscated and That's so right. forth. So I mean, what's your take on all of this? 
trying to put that case in its own separate context. Um, I think th these, this is Mark and Patricia McCloskey. They're mm -hmm. both lawyers and lived in a beautiful home in a gated community. Apparently, the gate was unlocked and could be accessed without being destroyed, although apparently there are some pictures that show that it was damaged later. I don't know how much that really matters for that moment, but um, there were some protesters that were on their way to the mayor's house, I think, further on into the community to protest some things. And they got through the gate and were going down the road and perhaps uh, on the sidewalk right in front of the McCloskey house, which is right after you enter that, that community. And as, as you said, um, they came out both with firearms. There was immediately, I think, some verbal engagement. Uh, the McCloskeys were yelling, telling the protesters to get out, get away, leave. Um, there was some back and forth. The protesters, apparently some fairly ugly things said at different points in time. But there was no physical interaction. Nobody was hurt. No shots were fired. And uh, I don't know what actually happened other than I think the protesters just kept on going. I think what caught so much of the attention, though, uh, not so much that these were two homeowners who wanted to protect their house. Who can disagree with that? Uh, that's the most sacred place we have is our, is our house. And we have the most rights to protect it, us within that house, than we have in any other kind of scenario. But it was the manner in which they engaged the protesters. And I think, frankly, it was the way they handled the firearms that drew the most attention to what right. they did. And I think it would be unfair to the firearm community for us to take the position that they didn't do anything wrong. I, I don't know that I think they should be prosecuted. Frankly, it doesn't surprise me that they are being prosecuted if you take a clear, a strict look at the elements of the offense, this brandishing type offense, the context, uh, and look at the video. Uh, it doesn't really surprise me that a prosecutor, especially one who may have sympathies with the protesters in this political climate, uh, would exercise the discretion to charge them. So to just get outraged that they would be charged, I think, misses really the important stuff that came out of this, since there's lots of video that shows almost exactly what happened from beginning to end. And one of the things that it shows is that if you introduce a firearm into some situation, you are going to completely lose control of the aftermath of that situation if it winds up within the broad discretion of the prosecutor's office. Mm -hmm. The prosecutor holds all those cards. The prosecutor decides whether or not to charge an offense. Even if they do so ethically and professionally, others can disagree. And in this case, the governor has disagreed and offered a pardon if they get convicted, I think a state senator entered in and wanted to refer it to the federal civil rights 
unit to, to weigh in on it. Um, the attorney general is weighing in on it. all of them saying for them to be charged is outrageous. Um, regardless of all of that, the prosecutor has the right to do that. So that's why I said at the very beginning of our conversation, the first thing you do is not make it worse, right? By what you say afterwards. And certainly that extends to don't make it worse while it's happening. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to assume that most people have, have watched the video, but um, there's, it's pretty clear that there is, in my view, some fairly reckless handling. I don't know if you agree with me on that, especially oh, yeah. by by Patricia. She's waving this gun around. She's clearly pointing it at people. Finger people on the trigger. That, yeah, yeah. People that mm-hmm. may very well believe at that moment they're about to get shot. Thankfully, mm-hmm. no shots were fired. And I think even more uh, remarkable is that none of the people that the gun was pointed at decided they needed to fire at that point to save mm-hmm. themselves. Imagine what that would have been like had something, you know, started that. Uh, another thing that impressed me in a negative way about how they handled it was leaving the terrace of their house and actually going down into the yard to get closer to the protesters to wave the guns and to, mm-hmm. you know, to have this exchange. So, First of all, I'm thankful that nothing terrible came out of it because it sure could have in any number of ways. It doesn't shock me that they're being charged. Um, even if you get rid of some of the political charged stuff, I don't think that it shocks me that someone who handles that in such a rec- the gun in a reckless way uh, against people that had not at least uh, had not threatened them at that point from what we can tell. Um, that doesn't surprise me. Uh, it does. The, the parallel, I think, in some ways with the Zimmerman thing is now the media has latched onto it. People have felt the need to weigh in on all sides of the political spectrum. I remember back in, in Zimmerman that it was so distressing and sad and uh, made me angry when uh, President Obama weighed in on the Trayvon Martin shooting, you know, mm-hmm. made several comments that were clearly aligning with a, a, a faction, an, an aspect, a side of the case, uh, when that was a moment where he might have, by avoiding that, kept things from being so incredibly divisive and continuing to be more and more divisive. Mm-hmm. And likewise, I, w- I was disappointed uh, in this case we're talking about that President Trump weighed in. He didn't need to do that. There's no value to the case by him weighing in. He has no control, no authority over it. But by putting his two cents worth in, it now fuels more division. And uh, um, I don't know what's going to happen. I certainly wouldn't want these people to lose their law license, which could happen if they're convicted of felonies. I wouldn't want to see them go to jail. Right off the bat, the prosecutor suggested it would be a diversion type disposition, which would mean that at the end of this process, whether there would be some court supervision or what have you, the charges would be dropped. So that would clear the record. Or uh, what's probably more likely in the scheme of things, just from the glimpse of the personality of Mr. McCloskey that I've seen in the news, 
which I would have suggested to him early on as his lawyer, stay off of the TV. That's really not going to help you. But I would think that by his personality and, and such, and because it's become so political, if the prosecutor insists on seeing this through, he may very well insist on having a highly publicized trial. So it's going to be one that's going to be interesting to watch, but uh, but one that I think has lots and lots of layers to it and some bad lessons to note, as well as probably some good ones. Yeah. So you, you made the comment that, you know, you felt like a mistake made was coming down from their terrace down closer to where the, where the protesters were. Uh, is that because it's that, you know, that, that sort of thing would be viewed uh, certainly by the prosecution as escalation? Uh, well, uh, I meant that mistake a little bit like that, mm-hmm. but mostly how foolish it is from a tactical standpoint yes to to and and i'm no tactical expert for sure but even i know enough that you go from a position of relative cover um or where you immediately can get cover by going in the house or hiding behind some physical structure into being wide open closer to the people that you in a sense are agitating back so uh, and then being reckless with the display of the firearm Another interesting aspect of of this case is that apparently it's been revealed recently that the firearm that Patricia McCloskey had uh, didn't work. It wasn't operable. Mm -hmm. So she couldn't have discharged uh, a projectile, couldn't fire a bullet if you pulled the trigger. And I'm interested to see how that plays into all of this. It may have played into the way that she was handling the gun if she knew that. Um, It certainly made it the way she was handling it made it look Mm -hmm. like that she was right. Yeah, I agree. That would be very interesting because if, uh, yeah, if it could be, if, if her position and her attorney representing her, uh, is that she knew it was inoperable and that's why she handled it and treated it the way she did. And whether that would have any, uh, impact on, the merits of the case that I, I think that'd be very fascinating to see. Mm-hmm. I know there were some hints by the first lawyer that they had that there'll be some, something revealed. So it made me think that they'd known all along. And what I understood is that the gun had been taken apart and assembled so that it wouldn't fire or at least assembled incorrectly. And that in the firearms lab, the, uh, the gun expert was able to take the gun back apart and assemble it in such a way that it did fire. Yeah. Now, that may become legally important because under the Missouri statute for the charge that they have, the, the gun has to be readily capable of using lethal force or readily capable of lethal force. So one might argue that if it wasn't capable of using, of being lethal, lethal because the gun didn't fire, that would be a complete defense to the charge that she has. And that's something for the lawyers to fight out on later. I I do know that under Missouri law, that the fact that a gun is unloaded does not render it incapable of being lethal. So Mm -hmm. that wouldn't be a defense. Um, Likewise, I imagine if you say, well, the safety was on, so it, it wasn't capable of being fired. 
all of that stuff is for the lawyers to figure out later yep. on. Yep. Uh, it, so. Yeah. Very, very interesting stuff. So, so we kind of began today and you, you, you sort of started to close that loop a little bit by, uh, I said, you know, I, uh, looking at all these cases, looking at the Zimmerman case, looking at Stephen Maddox, looking at the St. Louis thing, and really, you know, the whole, a whole number of other cases out there that all exist. Uh, what do you want to communicate to concealed carriers uh, that are, our listeners of this podcast uh, that you feel is important as an experienced trial attorney. And, and again, you, you answered part of that question. You said the first thing is to not make things worse than they already are. And I think that is extremely sage advice. What other things would you suggest are, are, are good for us to know? When I say don't make it worse, what I mean is don't make a statement or do something that can be used against you in court. I know the hardest thing for a criminal defense lawyer is overcoming a statement made by the um, defendant or the defender to law enforcement or to others that has to then be explained because it wasn't well thought through or it was under the heat of the moment and that uh, their perceptions were distorted. Um, and the worst thing, of course, is the accused makes a statement and it doesn't match up with the forensic evidence. In my mind, it's uh, the case is always going to defer to the forensic evidence, and that's going to be what tells the real story. And let's hope that there isn't other stuff that um, that contradicts that in the in the statements that are made. So I think that's part part of it. I think also don't make it worse by making statements. In the press, keep keeping in mind that the interest of the media is very different and sometimes the opposite of what your interest is in defending the case in court. There are some lawyers that absolutely refuse to make any comments and advise their clients to make no comments ever because they know that's not where the case is won or lost, or more importantly, it can be lost, I suppose, if the case is in a sense tried in the media. As you pointed out, though, in this day of 24-7 news cycles, there are certain things, though, that need to be said to keep to keep the public reasonably well informed. Mm -hmm. So as the the playing field to kind of correct mistakes. But I think that's the lawyer or the the publicist or somebody that's involved in in having that contact, not not the individual. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, if I'm going to expand that a little bit. I think one of the most important things that concealed carriers can do is to keep training, take a class. Using the the, the St. Louis case as an example, um, it, it seems to me that while the McCloskeys may not have committed a crime, it's going to be pretty hard, I think, to convict them under these circumstances. It's a lot closer than it needed to be if they just knew better on how to act um, when they're possessing a firearm. Mm -hmm. If they had just done almost exactly what they did without the drama and without the hysterics, um, it would have just passed. And at the same time, if it didn't pass and they had to defend themselves, they would have been readily able to do so. Yeah. So just keep training, keep learning, keep thinking. And, um, don't make it worse. 
Yeah. You, uh, to, again, to that St. Louis deal, I mean, the McCloskeys, had they simply maintained a, I don't know, like a low ready position, for instance, pointing the gun, otherwise at the ground, there'd be, there'd be, there'd be nothing here in your mind, I assume to really go after them for. I think if they had just stayed up on the porch and mm-hmm. uh, like you said, showed that they were armed, I don't think that was illegal in any way. That's yep. not the kind of rude or threatening or angry display that the law is designed to, uh, to punish. Um, and they had just let it pass. That's right. right. Yeah. I think, I don't think there would have been any issue to that whatsoever. And they didn't really need to display the firearms at all. Mm-hmm. Even if they had them, they certainly didn't need to display them. But even uh, I'm not licensed in Missouri, but uh, my sense of it is that if they hadn't escalated it with the way that they handled the firearms, that this would be a, a nothing burger. Yep. Yep. Agreed. So one thing I've, I've taken note of uh, that with the state of things, the, the news cycle, social media, uh, something that is, I think, got to be so difficult to deal with on, I think, honestly, on both sides, frankly, although in today's current climate, it probably plays in the hands of the prosecutors more than the defense, obviously. And the defense is always, you know, number one concern is making sure their client gets a fair trial. Um, but, uh, you know, you've talked about how with the George Zimmerman case, there was this narrative that played out all across the world on news and through Twitter and stuff. And that, that narrative didn't add up with what forensic evidence showed. So often in cases like this, we're we're not going to learn about some of that evidence and for good reason, frankly. Right. So, I mean, what are some of your thoughts to trying to deal with that, that media attention and perhaps a false narrative that's put out there. Meanwhile, knowing that there's forensic evidence that tells a different story. There's some pretty strict ethical rules about lawyers talking about cases in the press. There's um, at the same time, I, I think there is a real value if done within those rules keeping the public generally educated, um, if especially if there has been a false narrative um, in, in the media, you have the right, I think, to correct that. At the same time, um, it, it, in a high-profile case, you don't have time for anything else if that's what you decide to do. There comes a point in time where you do the best you can, and then you just have to ignore it as best you can and trust that you can get your client a fair trial. Uh, Using Zimmerman as an example of a high-profile case, we knew that everyone who walked into that courtroom had heard of the case, and virtually everyone had an opinion about the case. And among all of those people, there would probably be some, even though they knew about the case and had an opinion about the case, would be able to kind of set that aside and focus their decision on the evidence that's presented in the courtroom. So those were the jurors that we were looking for. We gave up early on finding 
jurors that didn't know about the case. The few that said they didn't, we were convinced were lying. And so what we looked for were people that we thought understood the media for what it was, didn't believe everything they heard, and that we thought would look at the evidence as it came into the courtroom and make a decision. We weren't scared of the facts or the law. We were we were scared of the emotional hysteria that the media had sort of roiled up. So that uh, the ability of the jurors to sort through all of that became much more important than pretty much anything else. Uh, there's one interesting aspect, though, of the jury selection that there were several witnesses that lied about things they had done in order to get on the jury. Now, usually people lie to get off the jury, you know, <laughs> and, um, but you've, I've never had an experience where people lied to get on it, saying they hadn't posted things in social media that we caught them on. One juror that had actually participated in some protests that we found uh, and then said, no, they'd never expressed an opinion anywhere. That kind of stuff was maybe our biggest challenge. Uh, as many times as we butted heads with the judge, um, she was very good about individual sequestered um, voir dire, meaning the right to talk with the jurors individually um, about their knowledge of pretrial publicity and all of that stuff. I think she tried really hard to give us the opportunity to get a fair jury. And uh, too many lawyers, I think, there are lawyers, I won't say too many, there are lawyers that get involved in some of these high-profile cases for the publicity that it brings them, as opposed to lawyers that really want to represent their client zealously in the face of the publicity. And uh, uh, Mark O'Mara has great skills with the media. He was kind of the spokesperson for the team there, and he's more than capable of handling all of that. For the most part, I just kind of put my head down and, and kept digging into the case. So I was very, very deeply involved in all of the discovery and the forensic stuff and hiring the experts and um, kind of let Mark manage the media. Um, and he did a great job of it. Yeah. 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 Uh, um, yeah. Just a, it's a fascinating, you know, it's, it's a fascinating case. It's something that I remember very well. Uh, I remember following it daily and uh, like you were talking about social media and everything. Uh, there was a number of Twitter accounts myself that I was monitoring, you know, and seeing these pop up. Well, you know, mm. defense just said this and, oh, they made a motion to do this. And, you know, <laughs> it, was, uh, it was really, really something interesting to follow along with. Uh, there was uh, a bit of a perfect storm aspect to it. We had the media stuff. We had out-of-towners coming in to assert a very visible position in the case. But maybe more than anything else, the local prosecutor, uh, a prosecutor that we had known for years and respected and we knew would try the case based upon the law and the evidence um, was withdrew from the case. It was disqualified. In any event, the governor appointed a special prosecutor from Jacksonville who traveled down to uh, Sanford, Florida to try the case. And that just flipped it on its, on its head. Yeah. I, I'd never really dealt with prosecutors who approached a case like that. So that was another variable that, really changed the, the direction I thought the case would go early on. Mm. Yeah, that's a great point as well. 
Uh, one last thing. Was, was actually, go ahead. Let, let me say one last thing before yeah. you say one last thing. Um, a lesson for people um, thinking, you, you hear people say, well, I'll just take it all the way to the Supreme Court or whatever they think their injustice, the remedy will be. One thing people really need to understand that if they get prosecuted, now we all want not to be in that position. And some people, no matter what they do, still wind up being prosecuted. But everyone should recognize that if they get prosecuted, they lose control of everything. They are no longer in charge of their lives as it's defined by the legal process. Mm. They have a lawyer and hopefully it's a good one. Um, they don't know who the jurors are going to be. I guarantee you it won't be 12 pro-gun people. It may be a mixture. It won't be all white, all black, all women, all men. It will be uh, a cross-section of society. And we know how diverse and divergent that is these days. You don't get to pick the jurors that you want. Hopefully you get rid of the jurors that you can't stand. So it, it's, 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 alien to virtually everyone that's never actually participated. And some of it doesn't even make sense. While I believe it's a great system, uh, if there's any possible way to avoid being in that situation, you want to take all those steps. And that includes the training. It includes all the stuff that we've talked about. Mm. Yeah, that's a, that's a great place to kind of start wrapping this up. Uh, and, and actually, I was thinking as you talked about you know, that phrase, well, I'll just, I'll, I'll appeal. I'll take it up to the Supreme Court or whatever. Uh, the, the fact of the matter is, is the, the appeals process is not about, like, the appeals courts don't retry. They don't look at the whole case necessarily. Or they, don't, they don't retry the case for you. It's got to be something specific in the way that case was handled, the way it was mm -hmm. prosecuted, an error that was made somewhere. And they'll look at that specific process and then the result is either they're going to throw out that conviction or send it back down and say, you got to retry, right? Pretty rarely do they actually throw it out. It happens mm -hmm. on occasion, but usually you appeal because there's been a mistake, yeah. whether it's prosecutorial misconduct or the, the judge often in self-defense cases will give the wrong instructions or that won't give a complete set of instructions. So yeah, you lose the case. You are sentenced at that point. And while you are probably in custody, because if you have a long sentence, you're not likely to get out on an appeal bond. So you're going to be in prison for the next couple of years while your case is being appealed. And then if it goes well and you are successful, typically you get a new trial, which means you start over you know, right from the beginning. Uh, one thing that impresses me about CCW Safe is that they, the CCW safe plans cover the appeal and they also cover the retrial um, mm -hmm. on a, after appeal or a retrial after a mistrial so that you aren't ever left hanging until the case is fully and completely resolved. But mm -hmm. you're right. A lot of people don't know. They think the appeals court will reevaluate the credibility of the witnesses and they decide, well, I believe this guy now, so we're going to find you not guilty it just just doesn't happen that way yeah yeah there's a comment here on facebook from mark our attorney friend there uh -huh. it says trial equals a crapshoot <laughs> unless well it, it does but uh 
what can certainly help things uh, go your way is having a great legal team backing you up. And that's where we began this. And that's where we're going to end this. Because what I can tell you, based on meeting and talking with guys like you, Don, uh, and, and the whole team at CCW Safe, Mike and Kyle and Stan and everybody there, the, CC, the CCW Safe company and family, they truly understand how this works and they will have your back. And, you know, with guys like you being heavily involved in sort of guiding and overseeing a lot of that process as far as, okay, you know, I, I guess one thing that sometimes people will bring up, uh, Don, is they'll be like, well, with CCW Safe, like, they don't really let you pick your own attorney. And that's really important to me. Um, well, who would you rather trust to pick your attorney in a case? I know that most people will be, be like, well, I know myself and I think I'd pick, pick a good, uh, mm-hmm. good legal team. But I would rather have someone like you, Don. I'll tell you what, if I was involved in something, I'd want to call you and be like, Don, find somebody. Because I would trust you more than I would trust me in evaluating oh. att- attorneys. Let, let me address that because that's a really good point. And I, I in no way criticize people that say, well, I want to pick my own attorney. That yeah. makes a lot of sense to me. And yeah. frankly, the way that we get lawyers involved at CCW Safe is, uh, first of all, if the opportunity presents itself, because so that I can talk with the person, I ask them, do you have a lawyer? Do you have someone that you believe is qualified to represent you? And if they say yes, and that lawyer, in my opinion, as well as theirs, is qualified to represent them, because I'll call them up, I'll talk to them, I'll do some research, I'll be satisfied myself that the lawyer is qualified for this case, we'll hire them. We've done that on, on several occasions. If they don't have a lawyer, what I don't do is, here's a list of 50, pick one, or I don't say, well, get one and call me back. I actively get involved in identifying, vetting, um, talking with the lawyers, and then recommending a lawyer that I think is qualified to handle the case. Um, no one has ever argued with me about that if they didn't have someone else that they preferred. And um, it, frankly, that's worked out well. And it's sort of the best of all worlds. Uh, CCW Safe doesn't ask the lawyers to cut their fees or just be on a limited list or to handle cases that they aren't comfortable handling. We're looking to get well-qualified, experienced lawyers that aren't going to be learning on the job to represent our members at the time when they really need effective, experienced lawyers the most. So we're happy to have, happy to have all that input. Yep. And I'm so thankful for your input on that as well, because the way I've phrased what I just said a moment ago was was intended to evoke this this response, if you will, that uh, you know, like Mark here on Facebook comments is like, wait, they don't let you pick your own attorney. And like you just explained, if I had somebody in mind, I could say, this is who I'm thinking mm-hmm. of using. And, you know, I certainly hope that folks would be willing to go, you know, for you to take a look at that individual, ask them some questions or that office or whatever, and and, uh, and go, yeah, he's good to go. Or yeah, you might want to, you know, hey, maybe take a look at this guy over here. We, we know him and we know he'll do a good job. Uh, keep in mind that, you know, it's so, so important. Uh, the, 
the team that is hired to represent you. It'll be the most important decision of your life at that moment in your life if you're in that situation. Well, I think self criminal defense work is a specialty. Just yeah. because someone's really good at writing wills or doing divorces doesn't necessarily translate into being a good criminal defense lawyer. And as a subset within criminal defense, uh, self-defense, I, I think yeah. it's, a li- it's a niche practice because some of the rules are different um, and the approach is different. I think the way you present the case is differently because just of it being an affirmative defense, but it's, it's the kind of situation where you admit that you just shot and killed somebody. And absent a defense, that's murder. That's criminal homicide of some sort. Only if you have legal justification do you have a valid claim of self-defense. Yep. And um, in, in any event, I, I really believe that it's so important to have a qualified local lawyer, um, you know, heading the defense in a, in a serious self-defense case. Yeah. Awesome. Well, folks, again, uh, check out CCW Safe. CCWSafe.com is the place, the website to go. Uh, Guardian Nation members out there, don't forget, you save extra by being a part of our family, Guardian Nation. And so take full advantage of that membership. Uh, go ahead and you know get signed up today. Go to concealedcarry.com forward slash 14 day one four day to uh, get started. And uh, you, you can see all details about what Guardian Nation is all about at guardiannation.com. And again, don't forget, come on back next week, next Tuesday evening, 7 p.m. Mountain Time. That'll be 9 p.m. Uh, Don's time, uh, East Coast time. Uh, and we'll have him for our GN Live broadcast guest. And we'll we'll dig some more into some other issues and we'll have a, a direct opportunity. This is where that's the thing that people may not remember or they forget or they don't know about is that the whole idea, the concept of GN Live or Guardian Nation Live is that the members get to ask their questions uh, to, to you. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll you know, they, they, they drop those in a little Q&A window and we pull from those and, and feed you those questions and uh, we'll see where that discussion takes us. But I know it's going to be a good one. And we appreciate you for uh, being a guest with us. Thank you. It's my pleasure. I enjoyed it. Looking forward to it. Awesome. Thanks. Well, folks, uh, this has been a great uh, time talking with Don. And uh, I, I hope that you got something out of this. In fact, I, I know you, if you were paying attention, I know you did. Uh, so, uh, and if you missed it, go on back to the beginning, watch it through again, watch it through two or three times. I know that there's a lot of great information and nuggets uh, to pull out of this interview here today. So, Thanks again, Don. We appreciate you and your team and everything you do. And we're so honored to be, uh, you know, to, to be sort of joined at the hip, if you will, uh, yeah. between us. So thank so, you, Ronnie. Yeah. Great talking with you. So, folks, with that uh, reminder to what's the phrase? Train often, tra- train right, train often, and train safe so you can fight hard, fight fast, and fight true. Take care, everybody.
reminder that laws vary from place to place, and we encourage listeners to seek local legal advice to understand applicable laws. The Concealed Carry Podcast, Concealed Carry Inc., ConcealedCarry.com, and their affiliates strive to share insights and stories about firearm-related incidents and laws, but things could be different where you live, or laws may have changed by the time you listen to this. We cannot be held liable for your actions based on the information shared in this podcast.